Well, as Dustin said, this has been an unprecedented week. It's actually hard to believe. In just a short week, concern about the rapid spread of the coronavirus has escalated to dizzying heights. The World Health Organization uh, declared the coronavirus a pandemic. The president has declared a national emergency. The stock market has been in a panic. Schools and universities have been shut down. Travel from Europe into the, into the United States has been banned for 30 days. Professional and collegiate sports leagues have, been, have suspended their seasons. Many people have been told not to come into work, which normally in mid-March would be something greatly appreciated by sports fans, except even the NCAA tournament has been canceled. And then here in the state of Indiana, the governor, along with our mayor, has requested that gatherings of 250 or more be restricted. And so here we are, and there you are, watching this at home or listening to it on our podcast, unable to gather together and worship as a church community. And then to add insult to injury, we really don't have any idea how long this will last, do we? I want to thank three members of our staff, Dustin Krantz, Wes Bennett, and Nathaniel Duckworth for quickly acquiring and mastering the video technology necessary to record this service for your viewing. As of about Thursday, we didn't have this technology. And I want to thank the rest of our tremendous staff for their flexibility and for the extra effort they've gone to in order to make this new arrangement work. And I also want to thank our band and our volunteer tech team for being here this morning uh, to lead us in worship. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, we've been in a series on the book of Galatians, but in light of the circumstances, I thought that this morning I would break from our series for a week and speak directly to this new normal we seem to find ourselves in for some unspecified period of time. And yet, even as I say that we're in a new normal, for people of faith, nothing substantive has really changed. God is still on his throne. He hasn't abdicated. He's not quarantined. He's not on vacation. He hasn't left town. He's not out of touch. He's not traumatized by fear of the coronavirus. He's not in therapy. He hasn't retired. He's not sick. He's not subnormal. He's not abnormal. He's not old normal. He's not new normal. He's super normal. And he reigns supreme, the indisputable king of the universe. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? especially the longer a crisis, the longer trouble goes on. Would you do me a favor? If you have a Bible near you at home, would you find the Old Testament book of Job? Most people, even those who are not particularly familiar with the Bible, know that Job is sort of the patron saint of sufferers. This is a, this is a man, Job, who knew what it was like uh, to suffer. And there are aspects of the narrative of Job which, streams, which seem strikingly similar to our national crisis, at least in my opinion. When the, book of Job, when the book of Job opens, Job is thriving. He is wildly successful. He's also a man of great faith, which we learn in the first chapter. Let me read a few verses in the first chapter of Job for, uh, to help you see it. Verse 1 says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. And he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants as well. 
He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Let me put all of that in more contemporary terms. Job was so successful, he had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He was sitting on the board of three major banks. He had a beautiful wife, a lovely family. All of his kids were college-educated with master's degrees and PhDs. This is a man who's writing high. Things couldn't be better for Job. But as we have seen, the world can be turned upside down in the blink of an eye. Just a month ago, the stock market was at record highs. The economy in America was clicking on all cylinders. And it all came crashing down this week. Job experiences, too, a, a similarly cataclysmic fall from the dizzying heights of success that he had known. And each loss that he's going to experience comes on the heels of the one before it. I'll let you read the list of events in chapter 1 on your own, but first, marauders come in and, and they steal Job's camels. And while a servant reported that bad news to Job, another one came in and said that they had also taken away all of his goats and his sheep. And while that servant was still speaking, another one came and said that the cattle were gone. And then while that servant was speaking, another came along and told Job that a tornado struck his eldest son's home while all of Job's adult kids were having dinner together. And there were no survivors. Everything in Job's life is gone. In the blink of an eye, everything has changed. And as if that weren't enough in chapter 2, Job is hit with physical illness, a body full of terribly painful sores from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. It was so bad, in fact, that his wife didn't want him in the house. She was socially distancing from her husband before, before that phrase ever became popular. And so Job sits day and night in the rubble of his old normal, contemplating his new normal, trying to figure out what just happened. Job is so physically disfigured, the text tells us that even his friends and neighbors don't recognize him. And yet, if you'll skip ahead to the end of the first chapter, Job says in verse 21, this remarkable statement. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the text goes on to say that in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And I was reading something recently about the difference between how people today respond to crises like the one that we're experiencing now compared to how people long ago responded to them. Uh, like Job, people long ago seemed to take trouble, tragedy, crises in stride. This, they would say, is just how life is. Today, we seem to be surprised, traumatized, panicked when trouble comes our way, when crises hit us. The author of that particular article made the point that until recent history, people believed that they were very small, living in a big universe controlled by God. But in our secular postmodern culture, the prevailing belief is that this life is all we have and that there is no one out there running things. We're all there is. We're the masters of the universe. And so when these kinds of crises hit, we feel out of control. We panic. Because there's no one larger 
than ourselves to whom we can turn. And my point in all of that is simply this, that the further away you get from God, the more fear and despair dominates your existence. That's true both individually and culturally. The further away you get from God, the more fear and despair dominates your existence. For all of our bluster as a culture, for all of our belief and our rugged individualism, for all of our self-determination, a microscopic virus, undetectable to the human eye, has brought us to our knees, revealed our fragility, and sent us into a collective panic. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the measures our government has taken are wrong, that they're unwise, or that they're overwrought. I'm just saying that we don't, as a culture, really know what to do other than panic when tragedy comes our way because we have no sense of perspective of our place in the world because we've rejected the idea of a good and gracious God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And when you reject the idea of a good and gracious God who has revealed himself in Christ, there are a couple of predictable responses to trouble, crises. And I want to show, you, show them to you from Job's story. If you read the rest of the book, Job has these, he has three friends who come to comfort him in his personal distress. And at first, these guys are great. They just sat in silence with him at first. And they just suffered with him. That's usually what people need in crises, not some trite cliches. But when Job began to talk about what he was feeling, when he began to process out loud his loss, these three friends begin to chime in, and this is where things get bad. Here's the essence of their argument to Job. You can see it in chapter 4, verse 7. One of them says to him, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? And he says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. I've been on the receiving end of that kind of sentiment before, and I would venture to say that there is nothing more crushing, nothing more devastating when you're suffering than having someone tell you what these guys are telling Job. Here's what they're telling him. God is punishing you. God is punishing you, Job. The loss of your wealth, your family, your health, it's all on you, Job. It's something that you have done. God is punishing you. That's all it can be. And there are people who will tell you this when you personally go through a crisis. And when you're vulnerable, when you're living in your own head too much, it's easy to find yourself believing this, looking over your shoulder to figure out what exactly or more accurately which of the many possible things that you have or haven't done that God is punishing you for. And likewise, on a national level, Every time there's a crisis that hits America, whether it's a hurricane, a terrorist attack, or a virus, some spiritual leader somewhere finds a camera and tells us that God is punishing us for something. And they usually think they know what it is, and they're more than happy to tell us what God is punishing us for. I want to get out ahead of whatever spiritual leader might say such a thing. The problem with that line of thinking that God is punishing you or that he's punishing us nationally is twofold. First, it assumes that God relates to us on the basis of merit. And that's the assumption of Job's friends. When they ask in the verse that we just read, who being innocent, they ask, has ever 
perished and when were the upright ever destroyed. Their point is that innocent people don't have bad things happen to them. That's the point they're making. But you see, if you assume that bad things, if the bad things that happen to us are a sign of God's punishment, then you also have to assume that the good things that happen to us are a sign of God's blessing. The problem with that is that the Bible is very clear that we are all sinners and we all fall short of God. So none of us ever merit good things from God, but all of us do deserve bad things because we're sinners. And so it's impossible to draw a line of causation between God's blessing or God's punishment on the basis of our actions. The Bible teaches that all suffering comes from sin in general, but never from sin in particular. See, you can't comprehend that. You can't internalize that unless you believe the revelation of the gracious God in Christ Jesus who owes us nothing on the basis of merit, but out of sheer kindness and sheer compassion gives us the breath in our lungs every single day. Without believing in this gracious God who has revealed himself in Christ, it would be easy to believe that trouble and crises are some kind of cosmic karmic punishment for the things that I have done, for the things that we have done or not done. But that belief will leave you in a place in which fear and despair dominate your life. Something else wrong with that idea. The other thing wrong with this idea that God is punishing you is that it fails to take into account that the punishment we deserved for our sins was infinitely greater than all of the troubles you will experience in a lifetime combined. And it still doesn't come close to what you deserve. What you deserve. Job's friends ask, who, being innocent, has ever perished? When were the upright ever destroyed? That's the thing that they ask Job. Here's the answer. Here's the answer to their question. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was innocent and perished. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was upright and destroyed. And you see, for those who have faith in Christ, in God's grace, the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we deserved has fallen on Christ. Prophet Isaiah, speaking of Christ Jesus, wrote, he said, surely he, speaking of Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote that because Christ has taken our punishment, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for the believer, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ lets you rest in the knowledge that no matter what trouble or crises come your way, God is, listen to me on this, unequivocally not punishing you because he has punished Christ. And you see, the closer you get to God through Christ Jesus, the more peace characterizes your life. But the further you get from God, the more fear and despair dominate your existence. Well, besides the predictable response that God is punishing us in times of trouble, crises, the second predictable response comes through Job's wife. Chapter 2, verse 9. She asks Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? And then she says, curse God, die. In other words, Job, just give up. Despair, I think, 
is the operative word, word in Job's wife's comments. And frankly, I think it's easy to empathize with her, given all that she had lost. It wasn't just Job that had lost everything, so had she. Uh, in his play, Long Day's Journey in a Night, the author, the writer, Eugene O'Neill, has one of his characters utter a powerful statement toward the end of her life. The character says, none of us can help the things life has done to us. They're done before you realize it, and once they're done, they make you do other things until at last everything comes between you and what you'd like to be, and you've lost your true self forever. I don't tend to judge Mrs. Job's words too harshly because I think many of us, including myself at times, have flirted with the kind of despair, the kind of fatalism that is reflected in those words. To come to the belief that your suffering is proof that there is no meaning in the world, no God, no purpose. And it's easy, a couple of weeks into a lonely quarantine, or when you've been sick for an extended period of time to lose sight of God's presence in your suffering. But as you've heard me say before on many different occasions, the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes only to the degree that we remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest proof of God's love for you is the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. When you feel that you've been abandoned by God, that he is nowhere present in your pain and in your suffering, you have to look at Jesus on the cross. Do you remember what happens there? Do you remember? Not only is there the physical suffering of the cross, there's something much, much worse. Jesus actually became sin on the cross, and his father turned his back on him. Jesus cries out in a moment of excruciating loneliness and isolation. He cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the point, of course, is that Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross so that you would never have to be. There's no abstractness about suffering for Jesus. You only choose to endure suffering for someone that you love. And on the cross, Jesus endured a greater sense of isolation, a greater sense of abandonment, a greater suffering than you and I ever will for the simple reason that he loved us. Which doesn't make our suffering any less real. Which does give greater meaning to our own suffering. And a greater sense of peace in the midst of it. Jesus suffered on the cross, not so that you would never have to suffer, but so that you would never be abandoned by God in your suffering. That's the hope that you have to remind yourself of in the gospel. That is what will keep you enduring and persevering all the way through this trouble, this national crisis. And whatever troubles and whatever crises lie ahead in your life, you have to remind yourself about the truth of the gospel to experience the peace of the gospel. You see, the further that you get away from God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, the more fear and despair dominate your existence. But the closer you get to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the more that a very real sense of God's presence and the peace that comes with that characterizes your life. Those are two of the predictable responses to trouble and crises. When you forget God's reality and his presence, when you move away from him in your life. But I want you to look at Job's response. Job's response is very different. Nothing short of heroic. I'll summarize it like this because it, this seems to be the most apropos way of putting it in the midst of our own national uncertainty. Here's what Job does. He waits in faith. And by that, what I mean is that he wrestles with God through all of his suffering. His waiting isn't passive. His waiting isn't stoic. He doesn't just accept it as part of the random meaninglessness of life. He complains about his suffering. He rants about the unrighteousness of it all. He's filled with self-pity. But even in his complaining, ranting, and self-pity, he's still seeking answers from the God he believes in. He's still talking to him. And what's fascinating is that Job never gets an answer to the why of his suffering. God answers Job, not with an answer of why, but with an explanation of the power of God in the form of an inquisition of Job. I'll let you read that for yourself, but Job responds to God's inquisition like this. Chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. All through his suffering, Job keeps insisting on two things. One, that he's innocent and undeserving of his suffering. And two, that God has abandoned him. But by the end of the book, he realizes that the two things he was so sure were true were not. Job couldn't have known this, that there would be one who would come in the future who was innocent and who would suffer unjustly and who would be abandoned by the Father and yet was completely innocent. And that person wasn't Job, but Job points us to him. The ultimate Job, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lost everything in order to redeem us. Listen, we don't know what the days ahead will look like. We don't know how long they will last. We may be worshiping together as a church very soon, or we may be worshiping online like this for a while. Some of us may get the coronavirus, be quarantined for 14 days. But waiting with faith is the only way to deal with this. The further you get from God, the more fear and despair dominate your life. But when we look at the cross, we know that God has not abandoned us and that Christ's suffering for us is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. And instead of fear and despair, we experience peace, even in the midst of uncertainty and crisis, a peace that to the rest of the world surpasses all understanding. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, these are overwhelming days. 
unprecedented days. Everything about us in the midst of suffering is tempted to believe that you have abandoned us. Everything about us is tempted to believe that we as a nation are being punished by you. We as individuals are being punished by you. Everything about us just wants to give up. But Lord Jesus Christ, we are grateful that through the cross, we see with stunning clarity that God has not abandoned us, that even our suffering has meaning. That no matter what we go through, we can wait with faith. And Lord, I pray for the people of City Church, no matter what the days and weeks ahead yield, that we would indeed be a people who wait with faith and experience as a result. A stunning peace that to the rest of the world surpasses all understanding. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.